Good evening. Welcome to our evening service here at City Reformed. My name is Naman. I'm one of the assistant pastors here on staff, and a joy and privilege of mine to be preaching <clears throat> this evening. We are continuing our sermon series through the uh, book of 2 Corinthians, um, as we have been. I know we've kind of had to bounce around here and there uh, with some weeks, but we're jumping back into our sermon series, and we've landed uh, on this passage in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Uh, and as Jim has met, men, mentioned earlier, this, this passage is, is saturated by gospel truth, uh, that I feel like at times, if, if all the copies of the Bible in the world were gone or lost, and if I had these couple of verses, it would help uh, convey for me the, the core message of the gospel. If you've ever done that science experiment as a kid of, of surface tension in water and you, you take a small penny and you see how many drops of water that you can place on that penny and you'd be surprised. You get 25, 30, 35 drops. That, that single penny is saturated by that water and this is kind of where we come to tonight. Almost to the point where I can't do the full justice that this passage deserves, but we will kind of sit and hear uh, what God has to offer us today. So, if you would allow me to read our passage, and if you would feel comfortable at the end responding, uh, as is custom here, with thanks be to God for His Word. So, let's read from 2 Corinthians. <clears throat> Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others, but what we are is known to God and I hope it is known also to your conscience. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us, so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are, if we are in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation, the old has passed away, behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ God was in Christ God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is the word of the Lord. Now, as I said earlier, this, these verses are saturated, are filled with the truth and the core of the gospel of what it is, of what we believe. And it helps us answer the question, why are we here? Why are we here today? Why do we do this every Sunday? Why do we live the lives that we do live? And why do we make some of the choices that we do? 
And for us who profess faith in Jesus Christ, who call ourselves Christians, this is why we're here. The, the core message of what Paul is exhorting to the church in Corinth, this is why we're here. So as we look at this passage, we'll do so in three ways. What is the gospel? What is the invitation of the gospel? Uh, and what is the implication? Sorry, I flipped those. What is the gospel? What is the implication of the gospel? And then what is the invitation to the gospel? The gospel, its implications, and its invitation. And first, <clears throat> I'll start at the end of the passage. If you were to ever ask me as a pastor, Pastor Naaman, what are the top five verses in your mind that you think we should commit to memory? 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 is one of them, for me personally. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. If, if we ever were to ask you, can you convey the gospel to us. If you were given the assignment to go and preach and evangelize to someone, what is the gospel? You can, you can freely claim this verse. <clears throat> there's, there's so much rich theology. There's, there's long kind of theological terms and words, and I, I want to try to unpack that for us. And the first part of it is that God, He, God made Jesus, Him, to be sin who knew no sin. So in that, we see what Jesus did for us, that the purpose of this reconciliation that we see was for this chasm that existed because of our sin, because of our brokenness, that in the beginning of creation, God created the world good in His ideal, perfect order a place where we could enjoy His work, that we were made stewards of it, that we were in charge of it, and a place where we could be in full communion and access to God. For all intents and purposes of the word, this was paradise, where we could be with God fully, unadulterated, full access to God. And the only stipulation to maintaining that status was, was to not eat of the fruit of one tree. And it sounds simple enough, but the temptation there, therein began to sink. And the temptation that this fruit would offer, what it would offer us, is a temp temptation to be like God. That this fruit would open our eyes to the knowledge of good and evil, and that then we would become and have the same authority and power that God did. And therein where it was the temptation that the snake offered to Adam and Eve, our first parents. And we know what happens at the end of that part of the story, that Adam and Eve, they, succumb, they succumbed to that temptation. They decided to live a life outside of God's authority. They decided to say, I think I can make better choices. I think I can provide for myself a better life. <clears throat> so they decided to live a life outside of that good created order, outside of that so-called paradise. And so it exiled them. It exiled us. It placed that first sin upon all of their children and progeny afterwards, that as they were exiled from the place where God was from His garden, we also lost that unadulterated access to God. And not only that, there was a price put on our head, for the wages of sin is death. 
Now that was a price that needed to be paid, a punishment that needed to be absorbed, and there was no way around that. And that in order for us to enter back into the presence of God, someone had to die. And so for this schism, we are on the hook for that. We are on the hook for that. <clears throat> and so when Paul says to the Corinthians, Corinthians, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, what he's saying is God made Jesus who lived the perfect life, who knew nothing of sin, and he considered his perfect righteous son, Jesus, to be sin, to pay that wage for us. That he made him to be sin who knew no sin. God, in his radical, illogical, if you think about it, sense of mercy, decided to do something about that price that needed to be paid, not by making us pay it, but by paying it himself. So you see the common themes of a courtroom. Jesus rose and stood in our place to receive the guilty verdict. Or you, you, you hear the various economic themes that a payment needed to be made. A debt was incurred, and Jesus paid that debt. Jesus died the debt that we should have died so that we could live the life that he could live. He atoned for our sin by substituting himself as the scapegoat. And therein lies the truth of this idea of atonement, of substitution, that God made Jesus to be sin who knew no sin. And so then the effects of that, what happened because Jesus did that, we might become the righteousness of God. Not only does our debt get erased, so if you think about it from the economic standpoint, you incur this large red number, this insurmountable amount of debt that is accredited to your account, not only does Jesus wipe that away and make that number zero again, Jesus accounts an incredible amount, an eternal amount of wealth. So that when you see the, the courtroom example, not only are we pardoned of our guilt to say not innocent, God looks at us and sees us as perfect. <clears throat> when God sees us now because of what Christ has done for us and we believe in that gospel message, God no longer sees us for our brokenness, for our sin, for our mistakes, for our shame and our guilt. He sees his son, Jesus, when he looks at you because of what Christ has done for you. He made him to be sin who knew no sin so that Jesus took away our sin and gave us his righteousness so that we might become the righteousness of God. And you may be asking, why did God do this? Why go through all of that trouble at all? Why go through the trouble of creation, of, of Adam and Eve's fall, of our struggle with sin even today? <clears throat> why go through all of that? And it's found in the same verse in just a couple of words. The first words, for our sake, and right in the middle of that, in him. So that in him, why did God create us at all? I get that question a lot from my kids. Why did God create us? Why, why did he go through this whole creation story? I, I don't know the, the secret will of God or his, <clears throat> the inner depths of his motives of why God instituted creation in the first place. But one possible answer that I like to turn to is that who God was eternally as Father, Son, and Spirit in this trinity of this three persons in the Godhead was so 
great, was so perfect, was so harmonious, that they existed in a way that exhibited this self-giving, mutual love, sharing, understanding, intimacy, whatever it is, that this, all of that existed in God, that God was perfectly satisfied in Himself. So that as a way of trying to share that same kind of harmony, of love, of mercy, of self-giving, He decided to create a world that could share in that. For our sake, God created us so that we could enjoy presence and a life with Him. And so that the only way that this reconciliation happens, if we consider the backdrop of all of the brokenness that has happened and, and the, the big ramifications of the righteousness that is placed in ourselves, it only happens in Him, in our union with Christ. In the ways that we are joined to Christ for who He is and what He's done is the way in which we can be credited His righteousness and have that sin guilt be taken away. So what is the gospel? 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. I don't like to do this a lot, but if, if I were to give you a homework assignment this week, it's to memorize 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So that if you ever have the opportunity to share the gospel at, <clears throat> at work, at a gas station, on the street, turn to this verse. And so, as Christians who believe this, um, what then are the implications of believing in this gospel message, of believing in this good news? First of all, as Paul says, uh, verse 13, for if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. Now, that's kind of a, a weird context thing that he's bringing up, but what he's trying to say is that in the life of Paul's ministry, especially in the city of Corinth, there was a lot of things that Paul did that seemed crazy. That his life, his ministry, his missionary journeys, the ways that he went about his business and interacting with people to the outside secular world seem crazy. That's why he says, for if we are beside ourselves, these are the claims that other people are making about Paul, is that Paul it's this crazy, wacko guy who's spitting these nonsensical things about this so-called Jesus, and I don't know why he does that, but man, I don't want to be a part of that. But what we do when we become Christians, when we believe in this gospel presentation, is going to seem crazy to the outside world. I was at a, <clears throat> a birthday party for <clears throat> my son and one of his friends from preschool right in between the services. And anytime I enter into a, a context like this where it's predominantly non-Christian and people who don't go to church, I always get the question, what do you do for work? And, and um, I think Pittsburgh was the first time that I had to move to a, a place in a city for the, for the job and the calling itself. So then I tell them, oh, I'm a pastor of a church. And uh, this is the most interesting part for me is to see the, the plethora of reactions that I get, right? It's, it's this large spectrum of, of curiosity of, of raising an eyebrow, some people who are very polite are like, oh, that's awesome, you know, and they, and they, but you can tell that they're trying to, like, ask questions about, like, how did you make that decision, like, what led you to that, and essentially, why? Like, why do you do what you do? And if you consider what, what any of us here on staff at a church do, it, it does seem kind of crazy, that we come to work in this building every, a lot of the days, and we come to 
uh, Sunday, a day in which people love to just rest and, and take some time for themselves and recuperate before the week. And we preach two sermons in a day, and we, we meet with people, and we have lunch with them, and we listen to their problems, and we uh, try to think of ways to um, make a change in, in the city around us, that I'm on campus meeting with college students, and I'm meeting with students who no longer know some of the generational things that I know, so it makes me feel old. And, and so a lot of the things that we do as Christians, particularly in the church, is going to seem crazy to the outside world. And the gospel is this, it should seem crazy that what we believe about Jesus and the implication that it has on our lives and the way that it causes us to lead our lives is that people should be saying, you guys are crazy. Why do you do what you do? What, what motivates you to, to love that person or to provide for those needs or to answer this call in the middle of the night? It's because we've been shown that generosity in Jesus that we understand this ministry of reconciliation. So everything that they thought happened in Paul's life uh, was crazy. And he seemed proud, right? He says here, um, if we are in our right mind, it is for you. Verse 12, we are not commending ourselves to you again. And he talks a lot about boasting because the, the, the early church seemed proud to be able to proclaim this, this bold almost exclusive, segregating truth, but that's what the gospel is, that we get to claim this truth, that Jesus Christ was Lord, that he came, he died, and he rose again for our sin. So it makes us crazy. It makes us bold to preach this, to live this kind of life. But ultimately, where do we rest all of that is the first verse there in chapter, or verse 11, therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord. That we do all of this out of our fear, out of our reverence for God, as it said earlier in our call to worship. The fear of the Lord is clean. That that was a very interesting adjective to use for the fear of the Lord, to revere and respect and honor God. It's clean. It's pure. It's everlasting. It's unadulterated. <clears throat> so we do all of these things because of who we know that God is. So then other implications that we see quickly uh, throughout the rest of this passage. Uh, verse 16, we regard no one according to the flesh. We boast about what's in the heart and not what's in the outward appearance. Verse 12, we are a new creation. The old has passed away and the new has come. Verse 17, and when you consider that, that we are a new creation, that we've been made new, that we no longer consider ourselves from the old selves, <laughs> Consider that with the, the gospel presentation that we just looked at, where we were once segregated from God. We were exiled from his paradise. In fact, we were made enemies with God. But now, God, in his own initiative and power and mercy, made us new. That there are things about our lives now that look radically different than what they did before we met Jesus, that we have a criteria and a standard and ways, a perspective of looking at things that are not like our, the, our classmates, our workmates, our, the people, our neighbors around us who don't know this gospel message. That Paul himself once regarded Christ according to the flesh. That is to say, when Paul was actually an anti-church, anti-Christian, anti-Christ uh, 
uh, opponent of the early church, he was very effective in what he did. And he considered Christ Jesus to be just this influential person, but he didn't recognize him as the Christ, as the Messiah. But when Jesus enters into our lives, everything is radically changed. I went to a college, uh, Boston College, where the acronym that is used is BC. But uh, at times, I say that my BC days were my before Christ days, right? And so there are ways in which we lead our lives that are radically different than, than, when, than after we meet Jesus. And that is because, verse 14 says, the love of Christ controls us. The love of Christ controls us. Now, what would it look like for our lives to be controlled by the love of Christ? That we can believe in this gospel message to say, Jesus, save me from my sin. I can believe that. I like that idea that I had this immense guilt and debt and, and void that was filled by Jesus. He saved me from my sin. But the implication of that is that Jesus is not only Savior, but He is Lord that we now submit to him in everything that we do, that the love of Christ controls how we act, what we say, what we do, how we think. We're given this new paradigm, this new definition of how to love others because we have been shown what it means to be truly loved. Jesus is both Savior and Lord. It requires a daily submission to him in all that we say, think, and do. Um, if you don't know, my wife, Sarah, she, well, she's a counselor by trade, and being married to a counselor has, has opened my eyes to see the power of processing your, your history, uh, the power of processing your memories and your thoughts, and whether or not you feel like you're in a good place or a bad place, counseling is, is beneficial for, for everyone, and, and I say that as a plug to all of our counselors out there. <clears throat> is that I was going through the process of sitting through my own counseling, of going through counseling myself. There was a lot about my, my own history, uh, my own upbringing in the house, the way that my parents had raised us, and some hard memories, some good memories that I didn't realize then translated into how I today parent my children, how I treat my money, how I go about pursuing relationships, how I go about X, Y, and Z, so that all of these, the technical term of autobiographical memories have an effect, have an implication to the decisions that I make now and the ways that I think. And that's the power that the gospel has, that if you think and you process and you allow the Spirit to work in your life to persuade you, as Paul says, of this gospel message, it will have everlasting implications on the way that you live your life right now. So believe in this gospel message. Let it move and stir and affect you, and it will have these very many implications. And to close with our last point, what then is the invitation? What is the invitation of the gospel? Verse 20, first, be reconciled to God. Short, sweet, and simple. First and foremost, be reconciled to God. Believe in this message of reconciliation that Jesus came, that he was who he said he was, that he lived that perfect life, and that he, that, he, that he established for us. But then also, how does that light, how does that truth and reality cause us to demonstrate that same reality? What sorts of changes and effects does it have on us? 
that being reconciled to God is not just this uh, account of believing, but like reflecting on what sorts of truths and what sorts of patterns is it going to change in my own life? What difference does that make in who I am and what I now do? That if we truly believe in this good news, everything that we do would be a display of the mercy that we have been shown in Jesus. So then the invitation is to be reconciled to God and then to also to participate, that we now have been invited in to this ministry of reconciliation, that God entrusted to us this message of reconciliation. Verse 19, we are ambassadors for Christ. Verse 20, that we are now representing this kingdom ministry in the areas that we live, in the areas that we work, in the areas that we eat, in all of these relationships that we have, in the ways that we parent our children, in the ways that we conduct our, our money, our politics, our work, whatever, what have you. All of this is representative of the work that Jesus has done in and through us. That it's not just enough to listen and to mentally be persuaded, to say, I think that's something that I could believe and think for myself, but we are then made partakers to participate in this ministry of reconciliation. That's what I love about our church and our theology of membership is that it's not just on the paid staff to to do this ministry of reconciliation. It's actually our job as the paid staff to equip you to come alongside us to help us in this ministry of reconciliation, that we are ambassadors, that we go representing the work that Jesus accomplished for us. During one of my days in Boston, there's a ton of great food to eat, and uh, I was one time in Chinatown with a friend of mine, and we had always been given this recommendation to go to this one restaurant. It was a dim sum place, and if you don't know what dim sum is, it's like a Chinese restaurant where I have a ton of great small plates, small dumplings and plates that they come around in carts to your table and you can, you can pick off and they'll, uh, they'll charge your bill for whatever you, you pick up. And so we went thinking this, this comes highly recommended, so we want to try it out. And we quickly realized that we, we sat at our table and that all of the people pushing the carts were, were these elderly Chinese women that didn't speak a lick of English. So when, when the food came around and they asked us um, if we wanted what was on their cart, we didn't know even how to say yes or no or what it was. And even if they did know that we wanted them to explain to us what it was, we didn't understand what they were saying. And so very quickly we would ask them, and it's, it's not in their normal rhythm of serving to like sit for a minute and explain what it is and try to translate what it is. And so we could see the growing frustration on their faces of like, oh man, I, I don't know how to explain this. And so slowly over the, over the course of our time there, I felt like our table be, had become this magnet of, of opposite attraction, that all of these carts were like encircling this radius of not trying to attend to our table. And so then I went back to that restaurant two weeks later with a friend of mine who spoke Chinese, who spoke Mandarin. And the experience was radically different. <laughs> Things started coming out from the kitchen, dishes that I had never seen before, and our, our table was now a magnet for attraction, that, that we were being served all because we had an ambassador. We had somebody who spoke the language, 
who knew what it was to order, who, who knew, okay, this is how you ask that question, and this is what to do, this is what's respectful and what's not, that it became a part of this experience that we experience, uh, dare I say, the gospel of dim sum, if you will, right? <laughs> Um, and this is the same call that Paul is exhorting to the Corinthians and that God is exhorting to us. You have been called as an ambassador of Christ. That there are people in your life, maybe people who you thought, this person is never going to receive the gospel. They are the last person that I would think of to do that. But everything that you do in relation to that person is representing Jesus that we have been called to participate in this ministry, to bring others alongside of us, to equip them, to preach the gospel message, to memorize 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21, and say, this is what I believe. This is why my life is as crazy as you might think it is, but this is the radical hope and love and mercy and trust that I place in this person called Jesus. We have been invited into that same ministry. So that the Christian faith is always a call. It's never just a teaching. It's never just a good persuasive sermon or seminar. But my job here is, is to proclaim a belief to compel you, to convict you, to persuade you, to, so that you, we would be convicted to persuade others. So that the application here is let the Holy Spirit work in your life to see this call that we are ambassadors for Christ, invited into this ministry of reconciliation, to believe that Christ has died, Christ is risen, and Christ will come again. And that has lasting implications on your life and the lives of others. Let me pray for us.